0: Welcome to In politics today, there is a growing disenchantment among the electorate. This is demonstrated by a long-term decline in voter turnout and party membership numbers. The level of trust in parties and politicians is also steadily dropping. A modern breed of professional politicians has now emerged. These professionals tend to have short, sharp career trajectories, with little experience of work before they get involved in party politics and rise to the front benches. This political class is often accused of being light on policy, lacking ideological commitment, and not having particular experience or expertise. What they often instead is good media and communication skills, knowledge of public affairs and PR, and strong networks. This new professional culture of politics is characterised by populist, casual policy, and increasing emphasis on spin and presentation, as well as slick campaigning and hostile party politics. Discussing these topics and more around the issue of professionalisation today are Sundar Catweller and Dr Aaron Davis.
1: you've written about a new wave of professionalisation in politics in, in your book. How much has changed and what, what's different about politicians today from in the
2: past? Well, first of all, I couldn't say I did a conclusive study, but uh, I, I did look at the backgrounds of the 50 front benches a couple of years ago, the Labour and Conservative parties, and uh, I looked at them in terms of, of dates as well, in terms of pre-2001 intakes and post-2001 intakes, and in terms of uh, age, under 50 and over 50 and looked at the demographic characteristics and their backgrounds. And from that kind of thing, you could see clear patterns. I also got a sense of clear patterns through a wider set of interviews with 50 or 60 politicians and another 20 journalists and another 20 civil servants. And I touched on these issues about how politicians may have changed. And the findings seemed to match up and in terms of seeing the differences. So there were quite a few clear differences when you looked at the younger versus the older generation. One of those was the kind of degree they took, and years ago people did law or politics or English or history and now if you look at the the younger members of the cabinet or shadow cabinet, um, half of them tended to take PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics, a purpose-made degree for people aspiring to be politicians. Um, But it comes out in other ways. The, The older generation would have had a career, a clear, identifiable career in something like law or campaigning, or education, or business. Those were the, the typical things. And if we look at the newer generation, um, they've hardly had a career. They've only spent a few years between university and entering Parliament.
1: It seems to me that was the bigger difference, in a way, because the shift from Oxbridge, Conservative Labour politicians who've done law and history, or have done PP seems relatively narrow. But you did pick up a sense that people were getting into Parliament younger and getting to the very top Mm. of politics much quicker than the previous Mm. generation.
2: Yes, on average they were a few years younger when they entered Parliament but more importantly they took half as long to reach the Cabinet so they were often in Parliament less than a a parliamentary cycle say four years, four and a half years whereas years gone by they would have been there at least two cycles before entering the Cabinet or shadow Cabinet.
1: And it seems then to matter therefore what you were doing before you were in Parliament and for a lot of these uh, star politicians, um, getting into Parliament isn't the start of
2: their political career. No, and, and that was another distinguishable difference, because their political career, or their career in general, started by leaving university and going straight to work for a party or a think tank, or in journalism, connected to parties, things that were connected to parties, so they already knew party leaders very well, and were then given a safe seat, parachuted into Parliament, and very quickly elevated to the Cabinet. Right. And so you
1: take David Cameron, the current Prime Minister, as a sort of archetype of this kind of trajectory, and he, he was a kind of emerging star from being in Parliament only one term. He was the party leader.
2: Yes. Um, in some, one respect, he's slightly different, because he actually had a career of seven or eight years, unlike many of the others. But that, in other respects, there is no difference, because that, that seven years was in public relations, public affairs... But, like all the others, he immediately went after to university to work for the party in the, in the policy area, uh, behind the scenes, worked for a few years, worked with um, previous party leaders, as many of them do, and then took seven years out in the 90s when the Conservatives were at low ebb, before coming back and, again, was here less than, than five years before being elevated to a cabinet position, a shadow cabinet position.
1: Where we have seen the broadening out, to some extent, slower than many people would like, clearly, is in gender and in ethnicity in Parliament. I think we particularly saw that becoming to come through a bit more in the 2010 election. To what extent does that have anything to do with the sort of narrowing and the professionalising? Or is it that we're just getting a narrow professional class that's going to have more gender balance, more ethnic balance in it? Is is that a trade-off with the class narrowing and professional narrowing or is it just a separate issue altogether?
2: Well, I think it's connected, but I I more class it as a separate issue. I still think there were Whenever you see the figures, we're very underrepresented in terms of ethnic minorities and gender. And we fall behind many other democracies in that respect. Um, Of course, there are many that are worse than us. And and, and even though we made strides in 2005, 2010, we're still a long way behind. If you still look at the front benches, there's very few. There's a great underrepresentation. Although
1: in in this instance, actually, an interesting dynamic is because um, there's a shorter parliamentary apprentice than than there was. Actually, in that sense, British politics is becoming a bit more sort of American in that mm-hmm. we can get right to the top quite quickly. I mean, maybe the people who come in might not have such a, a, a long period because certainly, I mean, I think the big change in 2010 was that ethnic diversity and gender diversity was much less just happening on one side of the House and was now beginning to happen on both sides of the House, but you obviously won't see that at the front benches for three or four parliaments normally, but actually maybe less in your period where somebody could shoot through.
2: Possibly. I mean, the Conservative Party front bench still hasn't had much change, I think. Um,
1: yeah, because the big intake was 2010, which we just had.
2: I guess that's true. Um, but you saw, I mean, just comparing the Labour Party, I mean, they, they put greater emphasis on, on more gender and, and ethnic minority representation earlier on, and that's fluctuated. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we had more uh, women in, in the shadow cabinet or cabinet, more ethnic minorities at different points. Not that it's ever reached a high point. So there hasn't necessarily gone... Uh... Yeah, and I think, I think where your work illuminates something quite important here is
1: that I think you could say we're getting greater diversity front of house in politics, say, in parliamentary selections where the cohorts are speeding up. But actually, if you look into the back room, that will actually be the least gender balanced, the least ethnic balance, and the most class. Now, so David Cameron has made great efforts with his uh, Conservative parliamentary intake, mm-hmm. but might have a less diverse... People yes. Behind the scenes, and your, your research says, well, it's the people who are behind the scenes now who will be the party leader. Yeah, so I mean,
2: one thing I did realise looking at the figures was, um, in the front benches, a much greater percentage went to public school, a much greater percentage went to Oxbridge as opposed to another university or opposed to a state school, and um, so it's it's magnified at the front bench end. Those those biases compared to the larger parties on the on the back benches.
1: And Cameron actually, as a candidate, had to overcome the perception that the Conservatives wouldn't elect. In Etonian, poor, yes. poor Douglas Hurd <laughs> couldn't get a fair run at the leadership because he'd been to public school, mm. he said. So he's, he's the first public school leader since, since Douglas Hume. Yes. So, uh, I mean, actually, that's taken as him. I mean, that could be, you know, why does his background matter, which is what he'd said, or a sense that the whole thing really is becoming narrower and a general decline in social mobility coming through
2: in politics. So people get quite depressed about that. Yes, well, I think what happened is um, it became acceptable when you looked at Tony Blair and you looked at um, the other parties. And the Labour Party was suddenly, the front benches were more full of public school people who had been definitely in the minority before but were no longer in the minority. So if it was acceptable to the Labour Party, why wouldn't it be acceptable to the Conservative Party?
1: And maybe also he happened as an individual to have the skill set they needed yes, at that moment. definitely. And so. um, you, I mean, you studied his, his election campaign quite quite closely. What was was the key to him making that breakthrough at that moment?
2: I think the networks were very important, although they didn't immediately play. Um, The networks were very important knowing Michael Howard, knowing several previous party leaders or senior party figures who backed him behind the scenes, who would back him, although it took him a long time to get that support further across the party. But I think most importantly were were his um, public relations and media skills. They were really important. And um, compared to his opposition, David Davis at the time, he was very media savvy, very connected to journalists um, in a way that David Davis wasn't. So David Davis had a lot of support in the parliamentary party, but didn't know how to come across well on the public stage, didn't have the journalist contacts, in fact avoided journalists a lot of the time. Whereas Cameron and his small select group around him were all connected to journalists, all media savvy, all had media backgrounds of some kind or another and that eventually started coming through not just in the party conference where suddenly everyone noticed him but it had been coming through for the previous year to all the the journalists and the commentators they were noticing cameron as having a real chance even if he wasn't high in the polls because he was coming across much better than david davis and some of the other conservative candidates
1: so if the Conservatives choose cameron because they decide he's the person that's really got the best skills to communicate the party's message to the voters, on the Blair model. I mean, that doesn't sound in itself like a bad thing for democracy. Here's a party that loses every election because it's out of touch. Here's the guy most likely to put Mm. them back in touch. Well, Well, some of the
2: people I interviewed, journalists and politicians, they said that's what happened. They said in the party conference, and around that time, they stopped voting for the person they supported, and they started voting for the person they thought would get them back into power, because after many years of failed conservative leaders. um, They were getting a bit desperate. A lot of people naturally supported David Davis, or they supported Lynn Fox, or someone else at the Rising Party, but they just decided it was time to make a switch, and they voted for the person they thought would win.
1: This takes us back into the question of why does the professionalism matter? Where would you identify in it dangers and threats to the quality of our democracy?
2: Right, well, I mean, it, it obviously goes both ways. If you're more professional, and professional in terms of, you've worked in the policy area, you know how to work in policy, you've, you've worked in the public relations stroke journalism area, you know how to communicate better, you have an idea of, of marketing, communication skills and, and getting to know what the public or your party want. All that's good in a way. What's bad is what you might do with that and there's, there's an assumption in a lot of the literature around political marketing and political PR, that it just improves communication, it improves, it makes politicians listen more. But you could also say it just makes them more able to see what is wanted to be said. It makes them more able to um, work out what the public would like to hear and then say it to them in the ways they would like to hear. Um, so which side you come down on. And I, I think if you actually look at the Conservative Party now and the transition from pre-election to post-election, you would say the latter description is more accurate that they said we care about the NHS, they said we care about the environment, they said we care about public services, when really the underlying philosophy, which only has come clear in the last year, is actually they wanted to privatise all these things.
1: One area where it might be a bit cyclical, in terms of the gains and the losses, is there's a sense that the novelty value's slightly gone once you've applied the professionalisation techniques. For 20 years. And so the public maybe, do the public start hankering for a bit more authenticity? I mean, if you see a politician like Mitt Romney kind of struggling his way through the uh, um, Republican primaries, and he's clearly the guy with the money, the guy with the professional expertise, and he's got a sort of John Kerry problem in that there's an electable politician that people don't want to elect. I mean, do you see any hope in that that there might be a different model emerging?
2: Well, I think it is a worrying thing. I think, um, I mean, I asked my students this recently. I talked about celebrity and politics. And I said, would you like a professional politician who came across better and communicated better? Would you like someone who you knew where they stood ideologically? And they nearly all said, I prefer someone who I knew where they stood so I could agree or disagree with them. But on the other hand, I can see how the professional people within parties, the pollsters, the experts... Find better results from being vague about policy, from being vague about making policy statements and and putting the emphasis on pragmatism and altering your position and and, and your your media management. But I think if you look at the longer term trends, that wins elections. That professionalism wins elections, but it turns off voters in the long term. It it makes people more cynical in the long term and less likely to vote or to support a party or support a candidate or have um, a clear affiliation. All those things have been dropping over the years.
1: I find it hard to imagine that parties are going to say, you know, being a bit scruffier on the media is going to work. So the professionalisation's here to say, but they might pick up the idea, and you hear, especially politicians like maybe David Cameron and Nick Clegg, who come from particularly affluent backgrounds, expressing it, that they know it's quite narrow, and they know they need to say that they're trying to respond to that. What practically in the modern world could a party that wanted to take seriously this issue of narrowness
2: actually do about it, do you think? Well, that is a question I ask myself and I think about it. And, and when you look at the literature and you think about it, a lot of the problems are not, you could say, not caused by parties. Um, they're not caused by politicians. There are other explanations for growing disenchantment and cynicism and things like the media, things like uh, the power of global finance, which puts less policy options or policy levers in the hands of politicians um, like a trend to, to interest groups rather than parties all sorts of things like that but then there are a number of things which you can say are down to politicians or parties or, or down to political structures so parties can be more or less democratic in terms of how they consult with their members political systems can be more democratic or consensual the English system, the UK British system is very is the opposite it's regarded in, in the political literature as, as more undemocratic, more majoritarian in terms of... Um, it's, it's a first-past-the-post yeah. system, a majoritarian system as opposed to a more consensual system mm-hmm. where you can have uh, proportional representation, is the term I was looking at. The power of governments over parliaments is very strong. Um, in other systems, you have a more balanced mixture of parties, uh, balance between the jud- judiciary, parliament, and um, the government. And because you don't have those systems... Those kinds of things do play in. We also have a a highly competitive, distrusted media. We have one of the most distrusted media in the world. People know we're cynical. But well before Leverson and phone hacking, we always came bottom of polls across the whole of Europe and how much do people trust their press. There's a world value survey that's done every few years. The last one I saw from 2008, roughly, 56 countries. 56th was Australia and we were 55th.
1: It's a bad ranking, but I mean these are very difficult things for anyone to deliberately change. Although we might see any number of things happen now in our media culture for reasons that we nobody could possibly have expected in terms of the outbreak of the hacking scandal and so on. I'm just wondered in this professionalisation thesis generally how you would read Barack Obama's sort of extraordinary rise within that. I mean it's both very much an outsider storming the mm-hmm. citadel. And it's a tightly professional uh, campaign, a mm. system that weighs a lot of money, but has the grassroots. Mm. I mean, is that something that made you think there's a you know something different could come of that, or when he gets to Washington, does it turn into the same thing?
2: Well, you're right. Barack Obama had a very professional, slick setup. Um, his campaign was typically professional, just like Cameron. Really, there were huge similarities in, in saying very little about real policy, and you come up with images and soft focus stuff don't say much about anything but both of them also quite charismatic in front of the camera and um, i mean mean, that did engage people mm. certainly in the actual campaign but it also leaves people incredibly disheartened disappointed blair and george w bush both had the highest popularity ratings and the lowest popularity ratings of of post-war presidents and prime ministers because they were both slick in front of the camera, in different ways. Uh, they had a big personal appeal appear appeared to promise things that never seemed to be delivered. And um, Barack Obama, his opinion polls shot up and down again um, because expectations around presentation could not possibly be, f- be fulfilled.
1: And the expectations issue seems to me absolutely central. I think we could either be frustrated with a political system that just doesn't give us enough voice or power as citizens, or we could just be frustrated with the very nature of democratic politics in a society where other people have views we don't agree with. I wonder with the Obama case, whether people are disappointed because in a way they don't understand what politics is, as well as any failings he might have as a a man or as a candidate. That is another
2: key issue. There's an automatic assumption, especially from people on the left, that people want more democracy. They want more say, that they want people to be like something but... um, It takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of time. Most people don't have the time or the energy to really get involved, to participate, to understand. They'll sign an internet petition, they'll do something easy but they won't do something more substantial, um, either because they don't have the time or they they don't feel confident they don't feel they'll be listened to. So part of it is that they feel disconnected and, and disenfranchised, but part of it is we have very busy lives and complex situations. And as I realised, talking to a lot of senior politicians and civil servants, they don't understand the technicalities of a lot of the bills they have to deal with. And if they don't, why should ordinary members of the public?
1: So we end up leaving it to our professional political class. If you could just to end to make one change that gave people more access to a broader range of politics? Where would you put your energies and efforts?
2: Well, I think I would do a few things. I would look seriously at the electoral system. Part of the electoral system has a strong impact on the way parties behave and how they market themselves. And I think first past the post systems have moved more in one direction than than other systems. I would seriously look at the media, the funding of the media. Again, this is not on the political agenda, but I see a lot of the problems around hacking. But a lot of the problems generally about the funding models of our media. Uh, We take for granted that we need media for communication between politicians and the public. We also take for granted that a lot of that has to be privately developed, and that's been the trend over many years. But that model has been breaking down for years, and most people aren't aware of that. The funding model for good, proper research, good, proper journalism, good, proper investigation has been breaking down for many years, long before the Internet came along. Mm and snatched up a large chunk of the advertising, which made it even more unprofitable. So we don't have the media we have or media we need to properly interrogate what's happening in politics, um, to properly test and disseminate. And so they fall back on scandals, fall back on phone hacking, uh, fall back on celebrities as as another means of generating easy, sellable news. So I think that that ought to be looked at. I, I think the third thing that needs to be looked at is the long trend, the de- depoliticization, that's what some people have termed it. What I mean by that is parties handing over power to quangos and consultancies and experts and, and many branches of the civil service in the last 20 years have been filled with consultants, business consultants, um, who are unaccountable, un- invisible to the public but directing many policy issues around the NHS or education or business, often linked to particular beliefs and particular networks that they're involved in. And I think that's greatly de-democratises democracy in a way. um, Politicians don't want to announce it or say that, but they're handing over power. And so they're making power less connected and less accountable to publics in that respect. And that needs to be uncovered, I think.
1: And is there any pro-democracy trend that you find the biggest glimmer of hope in? I mean, do people invest too much hope in you know, social networks
2: and the internet and everything as a possible countervailing force? I think they do. It's very mixed. I think the internet has brought a lot of things, a lot more information to people who are involved. It makes it much easier for interest groups to emerge and organise and publicise. It makes it much easier for people on minimal budgets to put information out there and to make an impact under certain circumstances. It makes it more possible for journalists who have the time to go and look up and find stuff, important material to to publicise. Wikipedia to Wikileaks, there's there's a much more, there's a much greater volume of information out there. That's politically important. On the other hand, in terms of real organisation and communication, I have great doubts uh, because What it also means is is those sort of elite networks between businesses and finance and certain favoured interest groups and politicians and journalists are much closer and denser and they're very private, they're not opened out. So it makes that communication between them uh, more exclusive in some ways and less open than it might have been before. And certainly, I mean, it's one of the questions I ask many politicians about their use of the Internet to communicate with citizens, constituents. And um, some of them liked it, and they were quite happy to write a 100 emails a day. And many of them despaired of it, because they said, well, if I did this all the time, I'd never do my job. And if, as long as we live in a, a representative democracy, a representative system, if politicians were actually want to debate, be part of the many committees they are in Parliament... They want to actually talk to, to, to constituents face-to-face. They haven't got the time to do both. Um, so they said it's, it's not necessarily helping. Um, the ma- majority were very cynical that it would make them closer to the voters.
1: So it's been a you know, fascinating look around the rise of the professional politician. It seems to me the conclusion is that whatever people want to change for now, the professionals are probably winning.
2: Yes, and uh, professionalisation seems the way forward, whether it's in politics or, or, or business or or any other sector but it also means we're more disconnected and professionals are more disconnected from each other people in parts of of investment banking have no idea what other people do in other banks or or industry parts of the civil service don't know what's happening in other parts of of government um, because people are so specialized in their own boxes we're
1: back in our own boxes and it's a depressing place to end but thank you very much uh, for taking on this podcast
2: thanks